was just before 7.30 p.m. on February 9th, 2004, when Maura Murray was last seen. Her car was found damaged, locked, and abandoned on Route 112 just outside of the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Her disappearance has haunted and frustrated family, friends, and a community of people searching for the truth. Since that night, there has never been a credible sighting. You're listening to the Missing Maura Murray Podcast. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray Podcast. What a week it's been. What do you say, Lance? Yeah, it's uh, it's been something else. Um, took a little bit, a couple days off because we had to kind of regroup. But, you know, back in front of the microphone, got a good interview coming up. I think everyone's going to find this one uh, to be a little different from the rest. Yeah, I agree. And uh, and by regroup, you know, we, we took an extra couple of days. Um, we, we didn't do a Thursday release this week. And we just wanted to address that real quick, that we probably won't be doing a Thursday weekly release anymore. It uh, has come to our attention that it's it's just we don't want to force it it may just be tough for us to responsibly do an episode a week um planned for every thursday we may just have to do it every i don't know 10 days or so and just release it when we have it right i mean if there's going to be an episode that's coming out and it uh the timing works out so we can do it on thursday uh i think that's uh something that we can plan on but uh, we've gone through all of the information that we know already and the uh, the emails and the comments and, you know, with everything that was already set in place, uh, we were able to do something that came out on a weekly basis. But now that we're digging deeper in and we're getting more people to give us feedback, um, and I'm specifically referencing what happened on James Renner's site uh, earlier or later last week and the interview that we have coming up, it's starting to get a little bit more fluid. So putting a clock to um, a weekly release of an episode might be a little bit difficult. And you used the, the right word. It, it would be irresponsible of us to uh, try to force something. And speaking of um, what happened on James Renner's site, he decided not to post the big break that he has in the case. And we know a little bit of, of what he was uh, getting into, but we don't know everything. Um, and we want to believe that uh, that he did this because this is an ongoing case, getting to a point where it would also be irresponsible to release such information. Yeah, you never know. There could have been something that uh, he had that was solid that the police saw, uh, the cold case unit saw, and they looked at it and they said, you can't say anything about this because this is a direct link to it and it's uh, it would be um, obstructing justice, really, if he released something to uh, to the masses. So, and as far as him um, posting, you know, pre-order my book and then order my other book, uh, I, I we don't really know what to say. Um, but it's not like we're upset at James for abandoning us or anything like that. You know, this podcast probably wouldn't exist if it weren't for James Renner's blog in the first place. Um. And I don't think it's a publicity stunt by James. I do believe him that he's got a lead as substantial as he was teasing on our last episode. 
Um, and as far as the emails or comments that we got that were sort of nasty, um, one in particular saying that we're getting paid by James Renner uh, to do this podcast just so he, you know, this is all publicity for his book. Um, you know, that I found that quite ridiculous, and I actually emailed that person back. Yeah, not only is that ridiculous, but it's uh, it's 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 dumb. It's just not even. It's not even like uh, it's not realistic. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And as you'll see uh, in our upcoming interview here tonight, which actually is going to be a two-parter. You know, th- this guy and James don't really get along. No, no, and actually, this guy and and myself, um, the online version. Uh, yeah, I always thought that he he didn't he didn't like me, um, and you know just just goes to show you. And yeah, we we spoke about him on this show. He is Truth Seeker from YouTube, and we uh, seriously questioned his intentions in the comments that he was sending us. And uh, yeah, I guess it, it is safe to say that we did not get along with this guy up until we realized that he really knows something. And uh, we weren't sure what we were dealing with, you know, as far as is, is he just teasing everybody? Is he, um, you know, crazy? Is he posting crazy stuff to us? Yeah. Um, because that's, that's what he does. He wanted to, he wanted to obstruct the truth from coming out. But um, after speaking with him and doing these interviews, I can say that I firmly believe that he is not crazy and he is absolutely telling the truth on everything that he says in these interviews. Yeah, seriously. My trust level in this guy has grown exponentially since we started communicating with him, uh, you know, by the uh, telephone and then the interview. Um, And it just kind of shows the power of what this podcast can do. Before we started this, truth seeker, activist, watchdog, um, would just kind of exist out there in the internet the way the other trolls would like palm kick. Um, and he was kind of just lumped into that, uh, that category of people. So, um, it's just pretty amazing that, you know, he, he had heard the podcast and and liked what we were doing. And all of a sudden you realize that it's like, you know, kind of kindred souls here working on the same thing. And there's uh, one way to interpret something when you read it. And there's another way to interpret it when you, uh, when you hear the voice and you hear inflection. And that's what, uh, that's what we heard today. As far as I know right now, he's the real deal and he's, uh, he's committed. And it is tough to tell who's real in this uh, situation and who's not. The fact that he didn't trust us right away, you know, he was commenting on on the YouTube page and really sort of poking fun at us and, and uh, laughing at us and saying that we have it all wrong. And, uh, you know, after hearing his perspective, uh, I, I don't blame him for, for thinking that we're, you know, naive and, and sort of diving into this irresponsibly. Yeah, absolutely. And and we admitted that that at the you know when we started this that we were making mistakes. We knew we were making mistakes. The, our goal was not to be perfect. In fact, I don't think it's possible to have been perfect in the show that we're doing, where what we're trying to do here. We tried with with a good conscience every episode, and and it just wasn't possible. And so, thank you to John Smith for coming forward and and speaking and telling us how we weren't accurate and correcting us. And one of the major points in doing this podcast and saying that we don't know all the facts yet because the facts have been convoluted was to have people who are experts in this, who had their boots on the ground 
right in the beginning of the case, they're listening to it. They're realizing how much they can contribute to this, and they see the dedication of 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 the uh, the listeners looking into it, all these fresh eyes. And he just he just came forward because he knew that this audience uh, and and the vehicle that we're driving right now was legit and it was worth it. So that was the point. The point is to tell as much as we know, always with the caveat that hey, this is the information that we're looking at and. In, you know, hoping for someone like him to come forward and say, I was there. I was there with the family. I'd been there with the family for 11 years, and I had my boots on the ground, and we were searching for her. Exactly. So uh, so this is a pretty um, pretty great interview, I think. Uh, very happy to bring this to you guys, and we will bring uh, the second part of this uh, very soon, probably just next week. To introduce himself, he sent us this video, so we want to play a little bit of that now. Hello. My name is John Smith. I'm a former police officer and private investigator who has been working on the Moore Murray case since April of 2004. I have worked many times with the family on searches. Uh, I have also done several interviews. And over the past 11 and a half years, I have compiled several files about this case. I have several theories. Um, there are a few missing pieces, and I know someone out there knows the answer. Uh, I dig every day. I will never stop. So don't think that I'm going to, because I won't. I'm here to stay. There are people who don't like it, and I'm making people nervous. And you know what? Good. Because that's what's going to make people talk. And we want answers. Fred Murray and his family want closure. And somebody out there knows something. And we want them to come forward, to have the courage, to have the morals, and the strength to come forward, give information. You can do it anonymously. But please, please, please think about what we're saying. Listen to the podcast and think about it. Think about how you'd feel if it was you, your family, and you know something and you're holding back. It's 11 and a half years. Don't hold back any longer. There are ways to take care of this anonymously, protect you, and it can be done. Think about it, please. We also wanted to talk real quick about our meetup on November 7th in East Boston. We are going to do it at 2 p.m. So if you can make it, please email us. We will send you the address. Um, and so basically at this point, just RSVP. Just send us an email at missingmoramurray at gmail.com, and we will send you back the address. Or tweet us at at doc. that is D-O-C, because this is going to be a documentary. Also, we are on Instagram at Missing Maura Murray. We are on Facebook at The Disappearance of Maura Murray. That is the tentative or working title for the movie. And anything else, Lance? No, I think you covered uh, everything right there. Um, and I'm just uh, I'm dying to get into this interview. So, uh, yeah, I said just let it roll.
Today on the Missing More Amari podcast, we have on John Smith. John, do you want to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us your history in the area? Yeah, uh, my name is John Smith. I'm a former police officer and a private investigator um, from uh, Sugar Hill, New Hampshire. Um, I was born in Littleton, uh, 57 years old. and I've uh, pretty much been here my whole life other than leaving a couple times to, you know, travel a little bit around the U.S. But, uh, and uh, even after I left the, uh, the police force, of course, you know, and uh, whatever, I, I still had the uh, want to uh, investigate stuff. So when the case of Maura Murray came on the news, I became very interested, and here I am 11 and a half years later. What has been your experience in the 11 and a half years investigating this case? Well, it's been many different aspects of it. Um, you know, when we first started investigating, of course, there wasn't much info out there. There wasn't rumor mill going on. A lot of it was just, you know, feet on the ground, uh, going door to door, um, searching the woods, and, you know, basically looking at any leads that we could. Um, that were given to us, um, which were few and far between in the beginning, of course. Um, as we progressed, we found that things were slowly coming to us, but very slow, uh, very tight-knit community up here. And I believe, you know, that, that there are people out there that know information that could be very vital to this case. But um, because it is such a small-knit small knit community, um, people are wary of, getting involved, personally getting involved and putting themselves out in the light. Why is that, that people in that area are so protective? I think that happens in any community, personally, um, you know, depending on how, and it, it, you know, this community up here is a lot of people that have been here for hundreds of years, lots of generations. We've gotten a lot of people that have come in from other states now and everything as uh, things have grown and, um, you know, so that has changed a little bit, and you get the people that don't know each other. But a lot of the locals, you know, aren't going to tell you what's going on in somebody else's yard. You know, they just like, that's none of your business. And, you know, if you want to ask them, go ask yourself. So, and I, I think that's basically what it is. I don't think it's anything personal. I think it's just, a, you know, a, a way of living, you know. And we are the live free or die state, so... <laughs> There is a group online which has been rumored to provide false information in an attempt to mislead those looking into the case. They have been labeled ducks. Are you a duck, and can you describe the ducks? Well, first of all, um, no, I'm not a duck. Um, Second of all, the whole duck thing got blown out of proportion by online topics people who had no clue that these are real ducks we were talking about in the beginning. A friend of ours who was investigating this case with us owned property um, in one of the towns, close towns, and had ducks. And that's how the whole thing got started, about who the ducks were. So that was just an offshoot of that. Um, there were lots of people out there putting out false information. Um, you know, wanting to fight with people, wanting to just cause havoc on, like, the topics forums and on the original um, Morris site. It wasn't like some some group of people were meeting to try to throw off investigators or uh, armchair detectives. 
Well, I would say that, yes, on topics there were some people, but I, I don't think those people were ducks. If that's what they want to classify them as, that's fine. But the duck thing came from live ducks that were for friends of ours ducks, and they just uh, molded it into one to make it more, you know, uh, exciting, I guess is the word. But, yeah, there are some people on topics and, and whatever who have, I believe, put out lots of really false information. And I think it was because they were trying to um, deter people. And, of course, we don't know who those people are because a moniker certainly hides people. Why would people do that? What will it want to put out false information? Well, I think there's probably lots of motives. Um, but more than likely, some people are just Internet trolls who want to come out and just cause havoc on no matter what it is, whether it be a missing person, somebody with cancer, somebody's house just burnt down. Someone is going to come out and do something against it just because they can, because they can hide behind a computer screen and say what they want. And I think that's why they do it. This case must have been like a uh, like a breeding ground for those types of people, right? I mean, with all of the stuff that's going on and all the developments, well, all the theories, I mean to say, this is like, I mean, it must have been like a, like, like I said, like a breeding ground. They must have loved it. It was. It was a breeding ground, and people thrive on that kind of stuff. And, you know, like I say, you have the people that sit home and have nothing better to do than to troll these boards and just cause trouble. And, you know, I've done a lot of research over the time of people's monikers that they used, and and uh, you come to find out that you find them in lots of different groups doing the same thing. You know, sometimes oh, they right. use almost the same name, moniker, and everything, or you can track it back, and it's amazing what they will say to people, you know? I mean, it's just like what people say on Facebook to people using their real name. I mean, that, you know, that's insane. So these people yeah. behind the scenes, they've got nothing to lose because unless you're the police, we don't know who they are, you know? Before we get into your relationship with the Murray family, uh, I wanted to ask you about one of the theories that you have, which states that the accident where Mora's car was found was not the was not the original accident that an, an accident had occurred earlier on can you elaborate on that for us well i guess first of all to sort of start at the tree at the corner the saturn did not hit the pine tree at the corner okay and this is why my whole I said that from the beginning, before the reconstructionists from the PI team actually came in, did a view of the car, and said, no, this car never hit a tree. Um, so because of that, and because of a friend of mine who had heard on the scanner at 7.05 that a car had slid off the road on Swiftwater Road, and it was in the ditch. That call was later canceled and said the person is left in the in the personal vehicle. I believe that that where the car slid off the first time was more than likely a spin out and where the airbags might have become deployed. I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but I think she tried to the, whoever was driving the Saturn, let me not say that it was more because we do not know that one hundred percent and I will never state that as 
Um, so I think the Saturn left the scene of the first accident, which was within probably four or five miles of the original uh, of the uh, weathered barn. And on that corner, because the airbags were deployed, I believe the car spun out there because she was having a, a hard time steering the car. And I believe that that's probably what happened. She, and the car spun around, she backed up. There was no accident at the corner. There were no scars on that pine tree. There would have been a scar. The obvious point of the whole thing is the fact that the damage to the car is not consistent with hitting a tree. So I want to know why. It's my 100% big question of the whole thing is why we were told in the beginning that the Saturn hit the tree when it is obvious that it did not. One more point is that in on 210 of 04, we received a Grafton County Sheriff's Department report and on that report, it stated about the accident and everything. And at a later date, we received another Grafton County Sheriff's Department report, which was received to us on 11-4 of 2004. And it's obvious that these, that these uh, Grafton County Sheriff's Department reports had been either redacted um, or somehow changed because there are missing parts from the one that we received in the beginning and the one we received how many months later. So my question is, and it's the exact time that we believe that the accident happened because in the beginning it was said at approximately 7.05 a car slid off the road on Swiftwater Road. Okay, that was the original article that ever came out in the papers. And that got changed to 7.30 when Faith Westminster called at 7.27. And because of these Grafton County Sheriff's Department reports, there is something amiss about what actually occurred. Now, when you say we, who are you referring to? Without getting specific. As uh, we who received the reports? Correct. The family, the Murray family had asked for these reports, and they were given to me as part of the investigation. From the Murray family? Yes. Okay. And that's all public knowledge. That's stuff that anyone can go get. If You, you just got to go in and, and make it, you know, go in and sign a piece of paper, and they will print it out for you. Um, because anything that's on the scanner and whatever that they put in the log is public knowledge. They sometimes have to redact a name to protect people. Um, we understand that, but not missing whole sections of, a, you know, like two hours missing that's on one which but not is, on another. Which is what was missing from, um, from the one that you have from Grafton County. Yeah, and they're different. Two hours is missing? Two hours is missing from the report. Which two hours? Uh, the two the two hours basically before for any from time seven twenty seven the that call goes back to uh, six ten at night and uh, almost that no it's like an hour and forty five minutes I think is missing and it covers that seven oh five time of what I believe was the actual first call where the car slid off the road and then left the scene. 
No kidding. Okay. Why do you think that's missing? Yep. I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't think it's a glitch in the computer. I don't think it was a glitch in the printer. I, you know, I'm not blaming anyone. I am not blaming anyone by any means, but there's something amiss. And I want it, I would want it explained. That's one thing I would have wanted explained to me. Yeah. As an investigator, and I've never heard any true explanation. Now, when Dick Guy arrived at the uh, scene, um, it's reported that he said uh, everything about it was um, was off. Uh, have you ever talked to Dick Guy about this? I have. I interviewed Dick Guy um, in Woodsville um, many years ago. Um, he was one of the EMTs on the ambulance that night, um, along with one other person, um, who I will not mention his name because he's never been brought into this. Um, and in speaking with him, he said that from the minute they got there and they saw the way the car was in the towel in the exhaust pipe, that he said something was just not right with the scene. Um, he also stated that it was weird that they were only there for six minutes, which I said from the beginning. Um, once EMTs arrived, they were only on scene for six minutes before they were sent away. Um, and that's another thing that has been odd to me. And I know that there was no one at the scene to treat, but what if they found someone and they had sent them back, they would have had to come back you know, back again. And there was no other calls that they needed to go to. So it's odd that they were only there six minutes. And that's what he said as well. He says, I don't know why they didn't keep us around. Now, who sends them back? Who who, who um, gives the call saying that they are, uh, you know, the, the scene is clear and you can return? Uh, that was given to them by Cecil Smith, the officer, the first officer on the scene. So he physically, he, he like walk, he said it to them face to face. Yep, he said we're all set here. We don't need you. After six minutes. Now, also, if you, real quick, I will state that there were because there was a fire department meeting that night at the station in Woodsville. There were nine responders who went on the fire engine to the scene. Uh, there was the police officer there, and then there were the two EMTs who showed up. Now, my big question about this whole thing is why, as Fred Murray has stated several times before, why did they not just go around that corner? No police officers. Uh, the other officer, John Monahan, who was uh, a state trooper at that time, who came upon scene, came from Lisbon and would have come in from Route 302, 112 East to the accident eastward to the accident. So no cars came from on Route 112 from Lincoln, from the Lincoln direction towards the accident scene. No police officers. So no. So that area was basically left unlooked at that evening. Um, they did not go up Bradley Hill Road. They did not go around that corner eastward. From what we were told, they did a quick cursory search of the area. They talked to Faith Westman, Butch Atwood, and Butch Atwood went for a ride in his uh, four-wheel drive vehicle to French Pond Road to see if maybe she went that way. 
and that night was that's all that was done as far as looking for more that night did anybody go out the old peters road which is right there on the corner no uh there that road is is open in the winter because there are a couple houses when you first go up the road but um there, they would have seen footprints um, going into there. I mean, just because there was a slight dusting of snow that night, from what I was told, um, okay. there was not much. It wasn't a, like much on the road because with a dusting of snow up here, when cars drive by, it just kind of blows away. But on a on the cold surface and other snow, it'll stay better. Um, so, and there was also a lady who was walking her dog from down the Peters Road. Um, who would have probably most likely seen anything that would have happened or noticed footprints. And, you know, she would have been going, whose footprints are those? Because it wouldn't have been, been natural. So, I, I'm looking at the police report now, the original one, and the officer who filled it out definitely does write that it, you know, the car struck a tree. Um, I've, yep. I've wondered if Morris' head could have hit that glass um, or if that was the airbag. And it, it, it does seem to me that this officer may have made some mistakes. Um, because as you say, th- uh, there's no the recreation proved that there's no way she hit a tree. And we've been to that area, and I do agree. Uh, she would have hit a snowbank or the ditch before she would have hit the tree. There's almost no way. And even just from being there once, in you know looking at the pictures right. and everything, uh, that, that I believe she hit that tree as well. So I'm wondering if this police officer, you know, just just made a mistake here, and and if that's the case, which it seems like to me, that could he have made a mistake about the windshield too, and said that the windshield was broken from the inside? Well, I you know I'm not saying that Cecil Smith is lying by any means. Um, I don't know his complete record of. Um, how long he has actually been a police officer. I've never really looked into that. Um, I don't know his experience on uh, investigating accidents. Uh, but the, you know, the, the statement about the tree, um, you know, I would have thought that, you know, there would have been, there would have been some article near the tree, little pieces of stuff that fell off or, there would have been, you know, that when the tree, when the car hit the tree, bark would have been scarred up, and it wasn't, okay? Um, and then the car, because the snowbank, I believe, was about almost two feet high, foot and a half, two feet high, a car coming into that would have launched the front end up into the air, okay? And the first thing that would have hit the tree would have more than likely been that back, that lower uh spoiler kind of thing on the bottom that's dislodged. Um, and then the car would have had to nosedive to get in to even hit that tree, but the size of the dent on the front of the car proves that that tree is way too huge to have done that damage to the car. So then you're talking about hitting that tree, throwing it back out into the road, going the opposite way. I was a police officer for three years, little to New Hampshire, I investigated quite a few accidents, um, cars hitting trees. We have a lot of trees up here. And, you know, I've never seen anything, any tree damage a car like that without 
completely damaging the whole front end of the car in almost a, you know, a circular indentation in the front of the car all the way down through from top to bottom. I mean, right. yeah, sometimes it's a little worse on the top and a little worse on the bottom, but it didn't break the headlight even. Yeah. Now you look at that instance, that, that headlight is not broken, but the hood's pushed back four inches past it. So how did that tree get past that headlight without breaking it? Common sense tells you that that trick, you know, it didn't happen. I can't explain why he would say it. Um, I'm, I'm hoping it's inexperience. Um, the windshield thing, you know, I, I have no clue. If the airbag's deployed, she shouldn't have hit her head on the windshield, or the driver shouldn't have hit their head on the windshield. So um, unless, in my theory of the airbags already being deployed, when she spun out on the corner, could she have hit her head then? Could the driver have hit their head then? It's another scenario. I, I don't know. Again, you know, it's, it's, but again, the crack on the windshield, I don't know how many windshields you've seen broken from the inside that have been hit by a person's head, but it causes, usually causes the windshield to push out a little bit. Pieces of the glass will fall out. Hair will be caught in that, and there might actually be some blood. Not all the time blood, but more than likely some hair. If you actually hit it hard enough, it's going to pull out. There were no yeah. hairs found in the windshield. Yeah, well, speaking from experience, um, I actually have done that. We slid off the road um, in, uh, in bad conditions, in snowy conditions, and uh, just went down a little embankment, and I hit my head on the windshield, and when I leaned back, I uh, I didn't even realize that my because we weren't going that fast, but I didn't even realize that my head had done that damage because there was it was all it was all spider webbed and it looked like I mean it really looked like we should have been going about seventy miles an hour and uh, yeah. yeah I left my I left my skin on the windshield and uh, there's a lot of blood that happens with that when you cut your head which is why I've always never thought that that whoever was driving the Saturn. Um, that crack that's on the windshield just isn't conducive to someone hitting their head, especially after the airbags go off. It just, you're not going to be launched over the airbags into the windshield. And if the impact is so hard that it launches you over the airbags into the windshield, then the damage on the car should have been totaled. Like it should have been, it should have looked like a race car. The engine should have been in the driver's seat at that point. But there's just one more thing I want to say about the windshield. And there is a possibility uh, I have two other thoughts on that, and could it have been stress-related when the hood was pushed back on the car, and those the, where the hood hinges, those are hinged into the frame of the car and into the body of the car, which shield goes down into. Could that have been the reason, or I know that if you just take and you have a glove on a heavy winter glove and you palm your hand and you slam a windshield in the middle of the cold, then it's going to spider crack like that. You can do the same thing from the outside. And because there was no damage to the outside of the window from any, like a rock hitting it or from the inside, from a head hitting it, it was, I believe it was caused by one of the other two things. My personal thought. 
I just want to say a couple of quick things. First off, Lance, you left skin on the windshield. Ew. <laughs> And uh, second, so Lance, you looked at the you you've, you're, I sent you the picture just now of, of the windshield. I know you've seen it before, yeah. but I uh, just a close up of it, and that's not anything like what it looked like when your head head hit the windshield. It's similar, but this looks more like something. Um, like not saying I have a huge head, but it looks like something smaller hit a certain part of that windshield, and then the cracks ran. Instead of uh, the impact of something larger causing it to um, causing it to uh, not shatter, but spiderweb in a uh, like the way tempered glass breaks, you know, like the those small pieces. This looks like if a rock hit the windshield and then the cracks like ran. That's just my opinion. I'm not an expert by any means. Right. I've only hit my head on a windshield once. Right, and uh, now could the the cold weather have contributed to the the spider cracks just continuing to grow? Or just time, I, I guess, so. in, in general, yeah. I mean, I believe so. I didn't see the car until it got moved to Lavoie's. Um, no, actually, I take that back. I did see it real quick out behind Lavoie's, but I was not able to get close enough to look at it. Um, and then the next time I saw it, it was at Tupac in Twin Mountain. So... I mean, the windshield, when Mr. Murray saw it on Wednesday morning when they took him to the car, midday Wednesday, um, he, you know, the windshield was cracked like that. Mm -hmm. okay. um, it wasn't done later, like the damage, you know, that we see to the car now, how it's been damaged more. So it was that way at that time question. on February 11th. We got a question on Twitter about uh, if there were any photos taken of the accident. And uh, it seems to be that there was, and at least I have not come across any. Do you know of any that exist? No. Um, unless they are in the police report that, um, that has in information that hasn't been released to the family um, through the Freedom of Information Act, um, then more than likely I don't believe there are any more. You know, I think they described the damage to the car um, because there wasn't really any personal injury. There wasn't any physical injury to anything around it. Um, I, they probably didn't need to take pictures. Um, I think pictures might have been taken the next day down at Lavoie's, but I, you know, again, I, I don't know. I've never seen any, but personally, I would have taken pictures just because. I mean, you know, it protects your butt. Mm -hmm. You know, in case anything's ever asked, you know, you can go because, <laughs> like you say, you know, you looked at that car behind Lavoie's and it was one way. I would have wanted my pictures to go. Say, hey, now, look at it now. How can it look like that? You know, right. now you can't do that. So there is no evidence of what it looked like before. So I kind of want to get back to the um, the first uh, accident at 7.05. So uh, you get this information from a friend of yours in the area. Um, how did you, how did that come about? Yeah, I was looking into the case. Um, I heard of this lady who lives in, uh, lives over in uh, Wells River, Vermont, uh, just across the river from Woodsville. Um, and... They eat dinner at approximately 6.30, 7 o'clock every night, and they always have their scanner on. Uh, my friend was expecting friends to be coming up from Connecticut um, who actually live on Porter Road, um, Porter Road and then Hill Road, um, and she was coming up by herself. So when she heard the call at 7.05 on the scanner, she immediately became nervous because this is about the time that the lady was supposed to, her friend was supposed to be coming up. 
So she kept her listening to the scanner. And within just a few minutes of the call, she said she heard them say, cancel um, the person left in their personal vehicle. So pretty much that the person got out of the ditch and drove away. Um, and then that was when my friend called her friend on her cell phone, didn't get in touch with her, waited a few more minutes and actually called her at her house on a landline and because there is no cell phone service in that area and um, called her at her home line and got in touch with her and, you know, she felt much better. Um, so really, you know, until, and she knew nothing about, you know, the Mora case until later down the road, but she, you know, it was the same night she recalled, you know, she had it written down that her friend was coming up. She showed me the note. You've got that part of it that tells you that that was there, but it's not on the Grafton County Sheriff's Department. So, and I have a Grafton County Sheriff's Department that's missing that part. So is my friend lying to me that I know? I don't know. I've got evidence that proves that it, it doesn't prove, but it, it points to the fact that she's not lying. She was telling the truth and that, yes, it was a previous accident. So not necessarily the Saturn. I can't guarantee you that 100% either, but it fits. Is it typical of um, if, if a car hits a ditch and is reported and then leaves, is it typical for that to not make the police log or every single call makes it? Every single call makes it because nowadays it's it's all recorded anyway. Mm-hmm. Even though note takers are taking their notes, it's all on it's all you know digitally recorded. So even if they say you know that it should have said you know cancel call call you know call back the call back the uh, police you know call back the police. And here's another interesting fact: at seven twenty seven, when Faith Westman called 911. She stated that there was what possibly was a man in the car smoking a cigarette. I really don't care about that. I I don't, you know, well, I I do, but it's not part of this. But she called them immediately when you've got an accident on a corner. You don't know if fluids have been spilled. You don't know if the person's hurt. You not only tone out police but you call out the fire department for cleanup and you call out EMTs. They were all called. The fire, the police was called first. The um, fire department was called, uh, I can't remember the exact time, but a few minutes later, but then EMTs were not called for 17 minutes. Now why, why is that? Why weren't they all toned out at the same time where they should have been? Why were they called at all if, if she wasn't there? Just in case. Well, they found see, something. at that point in time, when they were talking to Faith Westman, she was at the car. Right. And this happens before Butch Westman or Butch Atwood stated, or whoever it was stated on the phone, uh, she says uh, they advised one female, no PI, but shook up. Called the Atwood residence, woman and. Uh, advised her husband saw the crash and came here to call, but no idea idea where the female is. Very odd statement, because he just left her at the car. So why would they say no idea where the female is, unless Butch saw somebody pick her up, and that's what he meant, 
you know, no idea where she is, but that's a, another statement that that certainly throws, you know, some more mystery into the picture. Didn't Butch, I remember reading something that he stayed in his bus to fill out paperwork after speaking to her and didn't go immediately back into the house. Is that true? What happened was I, I interviewed Butch twice, um, and he pretty much had the same story all times, it, it, all, you know, the two times that I talked to him. Other people who had talked to him first, he said he went to the house, he, he backed his bus in and watched for a few seconds, and she was still there. Then he went in to tell his wife to call, so he was probably in the house. He's a big man, got out of the bus, walked into the house, come out, let's say, three minutes, two or three minutes, went in, told his wife to call 911. She called. He went back out to his bus to do the paperwork, is what we were told, what was he said to people way in the beginning. So, and yes, he did bus, go back out to his bus. Is the bus parked in a place where he could sit in the driver's seat and do his paperwork and see the accident? Yes, his bus used to, he used to pull into his driveway, um, which is on, you know, at, on the left going down eastward. He would pull into that driveway face first, and then he would back around and back in beside his garage. And his garage, where he parked the bus, was almost parallel with the road, he would either park it like that or he would back it in, but it was still out far enough so he could see up the road towards the accident scene because that on that side of the road, there's no stand of real trees. They're kind of set back off the road. So you would be able to have almost a direct line from even his front porch up to the accident scene. Okay. So I just want to, I just want to put it together in my head and maybe kind of recap the last bit right there for uh, people listening. So he arrives, talks to the driver, who um, you know we're assuming was Mora, but talks to the driver. She says, don't call 911. I called AAA. He goes to his house, which is within sight of the accident, goes inside, tells his wife to call 911. She does and gives the statement that there's no persons injured but no idea where the girl is. He goes back out to his bus, does the paperwork in his bus in view of the accident. And she's, she's gone. Cause if she was there, he would have seen her get picked up or run away. So now this window of her going missing is literally probably cut in half because I'm sure he came out of the house and looked immediately towards the accident because he's not going to, you know, he just came from that probably with a sense of urgency you know, telling his wife to call, but still saying to her, cause she probably, the way I'm imagining it is, was somebody hurt? And he says, no, I don't think anyone was hurt. So that's probably where they got the no person injured, but where they got the no idea where the girl is. That's, that's a little, um, that's an awkward statement for me. That's pretty, that's pretty much it. Right. And I'm glad that you brought that up because it, it certainly does tell you that, when he went into the house, if he told his wife that there was no PI, just shook up, but no idea where the female is, when he went into the house, she was still at the car. Had to have been. He would have known that, right? I mean, he would have. No, he, why would you throw that statement in there if you'd just gone in the house? I just left her 
she's at the car. That's what you would have said. Unless you know for sure that she wasn't there, why would he have said that to his wife? Could it be something as simple as they asked her, where is the woman now? And she said, well, I have no idea because I'm not the one looking at the accident. My husband came in and told me to call. Yeah, that is possible. Yeah, yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that. Okay. I really hadn't thought about that. I, I probably would have gone with, well, my husband said she was just at the car. Right. You know, I wouldn't have said, no, I don't know where she is. I would have said, well, my husband said she's just at the car and she's not, you know, she's not injured, but she shook up. Right. You know, and again, I'm not placing blame and just trying to explain stuff out here. Um, What I will say about the Faith Westman thing is that um, Faith Westman was um, Faith Westman was the one who had a complete view of the scene of the accident. Better than Butch Atwood. Why was Faith Westman let go off of 911 before police arrived on the scene? In normal circumstances, the person is kept on the phone to advise of any new things. What if a car come around the corner and hit her, hit the car in the road, and now you've got a whole other thing, so you've got to call 911 again? They keep people on the line. Oh, okay, the cops are there. Thank you, ma'am. Appreciate your help. And I know that they're saying that there was a tie-up on the line that night, but I don't, you know, it, it doesn't, it, I would like that explained myself, you know, again to me is why that they didn't keep her on 911. So after you found out about the case, when was the first time you approached the Murray family uh, to provide some assistance? Uh, I saw um, on WMUR, our local TV station up here, I saw the uh, uh, the piece about Maura Murray um, immediately became um, uh, involved in my mind because I wanted to know what happened. It happened 15 miles from my house. Um, and then uh, I called the Murray family Probably, probably March, the first week in March. I don't recall exactly. They might have it written down someplace. I don't. Um, I called them to offer my assistance, told them I was a local person. I know a lot of people. I know the roads like the back of my hand. Um, I can help you out. I can get you around up here. I'm an ex-police officer. You know, we, you know I can help you. Um, they talked to me. Um, uh, and they said, okay, whatever, thank you for calling. Um, they, of course, being my name, John Smith, and I don't blame them all, they called the police um, to find out who John Smith is. Um, and the two detectives uh, came to my workplace and uh, wanted to talk to me about calling the Murrays. And I said, well, what's the problem? You know, why, why is there a problem with me calling the Murrays? And I said, I'm just offering my help to them. You know, I'm a nice guy. I just want to help them out. Um, how would you feel if it was your daughter? Um, and they said, look, this is an investigation. 
We don't need you involved in it. If you persist, we will arrest you for interfering with an investigation. Well, you know, being, you know, a guy who's just working and doing his job and whatever, I was like, all right, you know, good luck to the Murrays. I, you know, that was what I said. Um, about two weeks later, Fred Murray caught me in Franconia at the supermarket. Him and his family load full of car, his car load full of family. And I have chills right now talking about this because it was one of the worst days of my life because Fred got out of his car and said, John Smith. And I said, hi, Mr. Murray. I mean, I knew what he looked like by that time. Um, and, uh, he says, you know, you offered your help before and we want it again now. And I said, I can't, sir. I said, if, if I do, they're going to arrest me. And I said, I, you know, I just, I don't want to get arrested. You know, I said, I, I have a clean record. I, I don't need this. And I mean, the look on his face and I'll never forget it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was heart wrenching and I'm getting broken up over it right now because I was denying a man a chance to help find his daughter. And, and I wish I had jumped on the boat then. Um, and it was about, I think I waited three weeks and I couldn't stand it anymore. I couldn't take the, the angst, the anxiety. I, I called him back and I said, I'm here. And it's 11 years later and I'm still here. So, and I'm never. not quitting. Good. And the police have never, um, uh, talked to you again about interfering. No, nope. They've never come back to me. I know that some of my original posts um, from uh, Websleuths, I think it was, way back when, um, actually came out when Fred Murray got his information. One of my posts was was uh, part of the Freedom of Information Act, which I was like, really? And uh, it was the one where I questioned everything about that night. When I just explained to you guys earlier about the the car, the the police report, every that's and that's pretty much what I questioned because, being an ex police officer, I'm looking at what I'm looking at and I'm seeing I'm going it isn't right. So, um, that was you know that was uh, that was that. How often in the eleven years since uh, since you first uh, spoke face to face with Fred, do you uh, communicate with him now? And the family. I communicate with Fred. Quite often, I mean, not not a lot, not as much as other parts of the family, not as much as uh, Helena and another cousin, um, because any information that I get is immediately given to them. Uh, and I've been with Fred on searches. Uh, I've been out on interviews with him. Um, not a ton of searches with him. He's done a lot of it, not his own, but with other parts of the family. And I've gotten tips and gone on my own to look and you know, so it's like we're doubling up, you know, going to other places, killing two birds with one stone per se. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, so I've been with them a lot. I've gone out to dinner with them after searches, um, discussed the case for hours on end. Um, and I've just always been here. They have my numbers. I have their numbers. They have my email. They can contact me anytime. And it's the same way with me. So, um, Sadly, the disappearance of Maura Murray has has caused me to gain these friends who are I'm calling true friends now because they're 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 people they're great people and they they're just looking they're distraught people looking for their missing loved one 
and they just want some answers. And, and a lot of people, like I say, don't understand that. You know, they're, they're not in their position. So in no possible way you think Fred was involved with Mora uh, disappearing? I could not say 100% that Fred Murray did not do anything. I, you know, I mean, who can say that? But my gut and everything that I've seen in the past 11 years shows not someone who is, who could do anything like that. I mean, if you were to ever meet Fred Murray and to be able to look into those eyes, it's chilling because it's, it's a man who, like I said in my email to you before, he will go to his grave looking for his daughter. And I know that. I mean, it, it's, it kills me to have to say that, but I know he will. He's not going to give up. And, you know, no, I, you know, like I say, I can't say 100%, but I'm 99.9% sure that he did not. And I don't believe any blood relative of the Murrays has anything to do with it. I just want to say that I, that I agree. And I know we, we've gotten a lot of uh, grief on Twitter and through emails saying that we're really hard on the family or we're we're calling Fred a bad guy or saying that he did things. And uh, and we're really not. We're All we're trying to do is ask the questions. Um, personally, uh, Lance, I don't know about you, but you know, I, I don't think Fred did abs- anything nefarious to make Mora disappear. I think at the worst, he might have been part of the reason that she um, tried to get away for a few days or longer. Uh, and maybe he even tried to help her. Maybe not. I'm, I'm unclear about that. But I'm pretty positive in, in my gut that I agree with you. None of the family did anything to make Mora disappear. Just want to be clear about that. Yeah, and as we've gotten into this a little bit more and dug a little deeper and gotten a little bit closer to, um, you know, the, the, the original facts of the case, uh, it's really opened my eyes to a lot of things that I saw in a certain way. And the way everyone online talks about Fred Murray and being uh, elusive and not wanting to talk to people and being um, uh, like standoffish. And he only talks to the people that he chooses to talk to and he submits a list of questions. Hearing you say something like that really, and I hope it opens up everyone's eyes to the situation and um, how people deal with certain things. And you know, as far as him being standoffish and and only doing certain interviews and 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 presenting a list of questions that he can be asked, that you know, hearing what you say makes like that it now that makes sense to me. You know, if I if I was in his position, I could see myself saying, I don't want to get all sidetracked with some stuff here that doesn't really matter or I don't think matters. Um, so this is what you're allowed to ask me, and it it could be just as simple as that. At the worst. He might have uh, identified a problem in Moore's life and helped helped her to leave, and that's one you know theory. Um, but personally, at this point, I think in my gut, at the very worst, he could have done was just been pushing Mora too hard to be successful and to achieve goals at a point in her life when you know she was confused about a lot of things and maybe she just wanted to get away. 
and he was just being his, you know, that I just want to see my daughter succeed. And I, I'm going to push her until she succeeds. And maybe she just thought, I just got to get away for a little bit. And that to me, like that, I really, I would say with about 80% confidence that that's probably about as bad as it, as, as, uh, as that situation could have been between the father and daughter. Uh, I just, I can't imagine you seem like a really genuine guy. And I can't imagine you vouching for somebody for 11 years and not, not having any situation come up where you would question the intentions of him just finding his daughter, yeah, in 11 years. Well, and I think to solidify that, sticking behind Fred Murray and his family for 11 years, 11 and a half years, I will state that during that time, I... I'm an obsessive compulsive person, so I will not put anything down. It compromised my job. It compromised my wallet because I spent all my money. I have never received more. I received $20 one time for gas. That is what I've received in my 11 years. I don't want anything. Everybody said you're out for a reward. I don't want anything. I want Fred Murray to find his daughter. Everything that I went through I lost my wife, my girlfriend, should I say, of 20 years because I was concentrating more on the Mora case than I was on my life. I would not ever be around for 11 years and go through what I've been through if I didn't believe that Mr. Murray was innocent. 